I picked up a uh, book this past week, which I've just begun to read. It uh, is the national bestseller, Smart Women, Foolish Choices, with the subtitle, Finding the Right Men, Avoiding the Wrong Ones. Uh, It's written by two clinical psychologists, Dr. Connell Cowan and Dr. Melvin Kinder, both of them men. And... uh, (laughs) The first, uh, the first chapter which intrigued me was entitled, Waiting for Your Prince. Let me quote. Uh, this is in a section entitled, Searching for the Perfect Man. The man I'm looking for, well, he's got Richard Gere's body, Dustin Hoffman's grin, Lee Iacocca's business savvy, Robert Redford's charm, and Pat Boone's commitment to his family. Oh, yes. Most important of all, he'll tell me within the first hour that I'm the woman he's been looking for all his life. And uh, then these two good doctors proceed to inform women how to stop being foolish and to become smart and to wait and look for their prince. In fact, the back of the jacket says... There are a few good men out there, and here's how to find them. Now, I uh, I hate to disillusion you women, but uh, there are no princes out there. They're all frogs. (laughs) You can kiss them as much as you like, and they remain frogs. (laughs) Or, as he calls them in here, rats. There was a woman, though, a long time ago, who... uh, went looking for the perfect mate. She was looking for her prince, and she found him. The story is told in the fourth chapter of John. Will you turn there with me? John chapter 4. My concern about this story is that uh, when you preach on a story like this, you almost ruin it. I wish I could just read it, because I think the story has enough impact of itself without making too much comment. The problem is we have 40 minutes yet, and uh, I have to do something with the passage. So I'm going to read it and make a few comments upon it, but uh, I would commend it to you for your own study because it says of itself what needs to be said. Now, uh, the first three verses are introductory. They are one long sentence in Greek that lead us into the story. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left, or he forsook Judea, and departed again into Galilee. Uh, The Pharisees were concerned about Jesus. They were keeping their eye on him since the incident in the temple. They were uh, very wary of our Lord. They saw large numbers of people leaving John the Baptist and uh, gathering around him. And so they were keeping their eye on him. Jesus could see the storm cloud gathering, and as his custom was, he avoided unnecessary controversy and conflict, and he literally fled Judea. That's the idea in the term. He forsook it or left it because he had uh, more important things to do. There were greater things at stake than mere uh, uh, argument with the... uh, 
with the uh, Pharisees. And so he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. That sounds almost like a throwaway line, but uh, there is nothing in the Gospel of John that's irrelevant. Everything has meaning. If you look at a map of Palestine, uh, you would realize immediately that he had to go through Samaria in order to go to Galilee. Samaria was the region midway between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. Uh, It's the portion of uh, Israel that we call today the West Bank, or actually extends beyond that, but we identify it that way. It's right in the middle of the land. And in those days as now, the most direct route from Judea up to Galilee was straight through Samaria. But the Jews would not go through Samaria because they disliked Samaritans. They had a deep prejudice against them. We'll see why later. And so they would swing way over to the east, go down the hot, dusty uh, route to Jericho, then up the Jordan River, and then across into Galilee and completely bypass Samaria. It was a much longer journey that way. But they did so because of their prejudice. Jesus had to go through Samaria. The reason was twofold. Then as now, a straight line was the shortest distance between two points. He wanted to get from Judea to Galilee, and so he went on the easiest and uh, shortest route. And secondly, he wasn't a racist. So he went through Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, high noon, by Roman reckoning. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Our Lord had been on the road for half a day. He had covered uh, 15 to 18 miles. He came to the city of Sychar. He was weary and he sat down. It's an interesting observation on his full humanity. He was thirsty, tired, just as you and I get weary and thirsty when we travel. It's a very hot day. He sat down by the well to rest. Sent his disciples into a town to buy food. And while he was sitting there on the rim of the well, this uh, woman came. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus immediately knew that something was wrong. Because in those days, women did not come to the well to draw in the middle of the day. That was a chore that was done in the evening when things cooled off a bit. So the fact that she showed up in the middle of the day was significant. That's why John says it's the sixth hour. Now, just to fill us in on some irrelevant detail, but to let us know what Jesus immediately realized about this woman. She was an outcast. Normally, women would draw water at night. In the cool of the evening, they'd gather around the well. It was a place not only to uh, do a daily chore, but also to socialize. They would chat, catch up on daily news, and, and uh, talk with the other women in town. This woman had been shut out. She was like so many women that you and I know who are around, but nobody knows they're around, who are lonely in a crowd. She must have been a very attractive woman. She probably caused a little bit of uneasiness on the part of the other women. And beside that, she had a very bad reputation. They knew exactly what she was like. And she knew that the women would avoid her if she went at night. And so to save herself a great deal of embarrassment, she made that long, hot trek from Sychar over to the well in the middle of the day in order to avoid the other women. And Jesus saw that. And uh, she sidled up to the well and... 
she must have been a little bit embarrassed. He was, he was sitting on the well. And so she had to get very close to him and, and, and draw water. She, she must have been a little bit uneasy, an awkward situation. Jesus broke the tension and the silence by asking her a question. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That sounds uh, almost rude when it's translated, but I'm sure what Jesus said, if he'd said it today, it would be, may I please have a drink of water. Now, Jesus was well aware of her need, as we shall see as we get on into the story. He must have seen it on her face. He saw the hunger and the longing in her eyes. A person's eyes are always the mirror of their soul. He must have seen on her face, in her eyes, the condition of her heart. Here was a very, very unfortunate, unhappy woman, desperate woman. Looking for something, longing for someone, and Jesus must have seen that on her face. Furthermore, he was a prophet. God revealed things to him directly so that that he could see into her heart and understand her. And that's why he asked the question, would you give me a drink? He wasn't merely asking her to draw water for, for him. He was trying to draw her out so he could begin to meet her needs. That's why he asked, would you please give me a drink? The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Back in those days, uh, men demeaned women terribly. Women were an oppressed minority. They were thought of as subhuman. They had very few human rights. They were mistreated, oppressed, abused, treated like chattel. Woman had no worth. It was a man's world. It's not only true in the Jewish world, it's true throughout the ancient Near East in general. All you have to do is read their literature to see how, how they despised women. It was more than merely overlooking them, they actually despised them. There is in the Talmud a well known prayer, which most of you are familiar with. It's still there, you can read it. A Jewish man every day prayed, thanking God that he was not a woman or a Gentile. They were considered subhuman. Furthermore, the Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. They were deeply prejudiced against Samaritans. They didn't drink with them. Literally, that's the idea of, of, of this explanatory phrase here. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews don't mix it up with or defile themselves with Samaritans. In other words, they didn't drink after a Samaritan. A Jew would never have accepted a, a cup of water in the hand of a, of a Samaritan or a cup of water that uh, Samaritan had drunk from. It reminded me when I read it again this time of the, of the Old South where I was raised and the black and white drinking fountains. It was that sort of thing. Terribly demeaning, but nevertheless a custom at that time. Jews didn't drink from Samaritans. That's why she was so surprised. But Jesus was not conditioned by his culture. He wasn't a racist. He wasn't sexist. He loved women. He understood them. He treated them as fully human, as Dorothy Sayers would say. Years ago, she wrote a book, or actually an essay entitled, Are Women Human? That's an a essay that only a woman would entitle that way. They would draw and quarter a man if he did it. But uh, in her essay, she comments on Jesus' attitude toward women. 
Perhaps it's no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, Jesus. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and their arguments seriously, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious with them. There was no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman. Our Lord never demeaned women. He always exalted them. He loved them. He understood them. And as an example of the way he treated women, you have the conversation that follows. Jesus answered, verse 10, and said to her, If you just knew the gift of God, if you just knew what God has in store for you as a woman, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. By living water, he means fresh, flowing water in contrast to still water. The wells in those days were reservoirs, uh, usually uh, plastered on the inside with lime and and uh, they would hold rainwater or groundwater, but they were not. Uh, the water wasn't fresh, and very often it was stagnant. Very few running streams or springs in Palestine in those days. It's true today. Jesus is playing on this idea of a spring in contrast to a reservoir of still water. He says, if you just knew what God wants to give you, you'd ask me. And and I'd give you spring water. Now, he's not teasing her. He's not playing with her. He's trying to draw her to a a deeper level level of, of understanding. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, about 130 feet deep. You don't have a rope. You don't have a bucket. You have no way to draw. Where then do you get that living water? Now, remember, she's thinking spring. Where do you get that artesian water? Where do you find a spring like that around here? Now, now you and I are used to the uh, to modern uh, plumbing, and we don't have to go down 100 yards or so in the heat of the day to fetch water. We just turn on the faucet, and out comes the water. She's thinking, my, it'd be nice to have that, that sort of uh, plumbing in my house, just spring water, to step outside, and there'd be the water. I wouldn't have to come down here to draw. I wouldn't have to face the humiliation I face every day. I wouldn't have to... Tote this big heavy water pot back up to my to my house. Where do you where do you get that water? Jesus answered. Uh, she said to him, "Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? That statement would have set most Jews off. When when she said our father Jacob, that would have been very offensive to the average Jew because, as you know, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Israel became the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. And for her to say that Jacob is our patriarch, our father, would be very audacious and and uh, would make any Jew angry. But our Lord again skirted around the controversy because it was superficial; it didn't matter at this point. He didn't have to straighten her out on her 
her wrong-headed thinking about, about Jacob, he answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. He's taking her from the symbol, which he's thinking about, onto a deeper level of understanding. Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. She would know that. She would agree time and time again. She'd come down to that well and had drawn the water, taken it back to the house, and she would drink and, and get thirsty again and drink and get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And at that point, I think the, the coin dropped. She realized what he was saying. It's, it's so like, like our Lord to start over here and just gently turn the conversation and lead someone from a very simple elementary understanding of truth to a much deeper, profounder level. And, that, and that's exactly what he's doing. She says, where, where do you get this spring water? Jesus says, in essence, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. That's the first thing he says. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. It's a gift. You don't have to look for it. You don't have to search for it. You don't have to dig in the ground to get it. It comes from me. Jesus says, I'll give it to you. Secondly, it's, a, it's an artesian spring, a well of water springing up. It's not one of these plastered reservoirs in which the water gets stagnant after a while. It's fresh, flowing water. It's always available. It's always on tap. Third, he says, it's, it's not in the ground. It's in you. I'll give a spring of water in him that wells up to eternal life. Not in the ground. It's something within you. You don't even have to walk outside to tap into this spring. It's in your heart. It's in you. And then the punchline, Jesus says what we're really talking about is not water that sustains physical life. But you see, he says to this woman, we're talking about another kind of water that will produce eternal life. And I think at that point, it all came home to her. She realized that her whole life had been spent digging wells, trying to draw water, coming up dry, looking here and there, every other place, trying to find someone who would assuage her thirst, someone who would meet her needs, someone who would minister to her, someone who would love her, who would care for her, who would give her significance, who would make her feel secure. And she'd come up empty. Every time she put the bucket down, it came up empty. But here's someone who is going to give her water that was always available, and it would enable her to really live. The woman says, as we would say, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She's still a little bit confused, but she's closer to the truth than she was a moment before. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This, this you have said truly. 
Now, you might get the impression at this point that Jesus is ready to terminate the conversation with her. He's come to the conclusion that since she's a woman, she can't reason any more deeply. And uh, so now he's going to call for her husband to come down and, and her husband can explain theology to her because she just is not able to comprehend these uh, deep and profound ideas that he's about to, uh, he's about to disclose. But that's not it at all. He wants to reveal this truth to her, but he realizes that there's something in her mind that's inhibiting her understanding. The reason she does not have a clear picture yet of what she's saying is that she has unrealistic expectations. And her expectation is this, that she will sometime find her prince who will meet all of her needs. And she's looking for love in the wrong places. She hadn't found a man. She just found a bunch of frogs. Now, uh, all of us go into marriage with an idealized picture of the woman that we would like to marry or the man that we would like to uh, marry. Uh, as the book indicates, uh, it's a composite picture of uh, Robert Redford and... Uh, Lee Iacocca and, uh, and other men. That's, that's perhaps the way a, a woman looks at it. A man looks for a combination of uh, Sandra O'Connor and uh, Bo Derek and Aunt Jemima. <laughs> we all have our, our idea of, of what we would like to, uh, of the kind of person we would like to marry. But the problem is there aren't any people like that. There aren't any princes or princesses out there. They all disappoint us. There, there, there simply is no one who can meet our needs. And the, the temptation then at that point is to think, I've married the wrong person, and you jettison that person, you junk that marriage, and you move on to, to someone else. I, I don't know how many people I've talked to who have been through one or two divorces who have said, I wish I'd never done it. Howie Hendricks commented this last week at the, at the pastor's conference. They talked to his father recently. His father said, the biggest mistake I ever made was divorce your mother. And shortly afterward, he talked to his, his mother, and she said, you know, Howie, the biggest mistake I ever made was to divorce, divorce your father. And they'd been through a number of different marriages because they were looking for the perfect mate, and they couldn't find the right kind of person. And so they scrapped that marriage and and started all over again. That's what this dear woman had done. She'd gone from one man to the next, looking for someone to meet her needs. And finally, she gave up on marriage, as so many people have done today. I read a, a New York Times review some years ago in which the reviewer called as a woman who apparently had been uh, was the victim of a broken marriage or a series of broken ma marriages who said that as far as she was concerned, marriage is the root of all evil. And, and, and that's a, a, a piece of thinking that underlies so much of the thinking in our culture today. And, and this woman had finally come to the conclusion that his marriage is hopeless, so she was just living with someone. She had gone to live with him or invite, invited him to live with her. At least she had a man around the house, though it wasn't legitimatized by marriage. And in those days, that was even more unconventional than it is today. It's almost accepted in our society, sadly. But it was not acceptable in that day. And it shows how far this lady had gone. She'd given up. But she had this terrible longing for someone to love her. She could not dispense with it. Couldn't get away from it. So she was willing to live in humiliation, to be ostracized, 
from the, from the other women in the, in the community, as long as she had a man around the house. And the Lord saw that despair and the hunger and the hurt in her eyes. And that's why he struck up this conversation. That's why he led it the way he did. And that's why he asked about her husband, not to further embarrass her or humiliate her or disgrace her, but to get her to see she spent her whole life living a dream. There are no perfect men out there. There aren't any princes. They're all toads. You'll never find the perfect mate. And you might as well be realistic about that. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Certainly he was a prophet. He'd unveiled her life. He had seen something in her heart that no one else had ever seen. This was a supernatural revelation from the Father. He said, you're, undoubtedly, you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The, the, a lot of commentators say that this woman was just trained to derail Jesus. This was a red herring. He was getting too close to home. He had, had identified her, as, as the, the uh, counselors say in this book, as a romance junkie. She had gone from one man to the next looking for satisfaction. And she was humiliated and embarrassed, so she wanted to divert the conversation. This is a red herring to get Jesus away from this painful point in, in her life. But I don't think so. Because I think at this point she began to realize that what she was really looking for, what she had been hungering for all of her life, was God. You see, that's what people don't realize. That, that deep longing that we have in our heart, that deep hunger for something more, it's not a hunger for another man or for another woman. It's a hunger for God that only God can satisfy. It's what Pascal called that God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. We come into life with an emptiness that only God can satisfy. That's what her thirst was. And she began to realize that, that what she hungered for was something more than a man. After all, she had tried on a number of men. Didn't work. Didn't satisfy her. So there must be something more. So that's why she asked the question. The question wasn't a diversion. It was, in fact, right to the point. She wanted to know how she could know God. She said, our forefathers worshipped up here on Mount Gerizim. She pointed up to the top of the hill where there was a ruin up there of an old temple the Jews had destroyed some hundred and something years before. She said, our, we worshipped up here. You Jews worshipped down in Jerusalem. Tell us, where should we worship? She's not just getting religious. She really wants to know. Where do you find God? Up here? Down there? And notice what Jesus says. Verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our Lord says four things to her in, in this passage. First of all, he says, you're wrong. You Samaritans are wrong. 
He doesn't quibble. He, he, he just states it firmly. You, you're wrong. You're wrong-headed about your worship. You don't know what you're talking about. We Jews do. Because salvation is of the Jews. And of course, Jesus was right. It was through the Jews that, that, the, that the seed would come. The one that was promised from the very beginning who would bring salvation to the world and who would set things right. It's from the Jews that the oracles of God came. God spoke through the prophets of Israel to the world. They, they were the chosen people. God chose one nation in the world through which to bring salvation to the rest of the world. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus says, you're wrong. You Pharisees are wrong. And what had happened was this. In the, in the 5th century or 6th century B.C., when the Jews were rebuilding their temple, we, we talked about this event. When we were studying through the book of Nehemiah, the Samaritans came down, wanted to help with the worship. The Jews wouldn't let them because their worship was corrupt. The Samaritan worship was corrupt. So they wouldn't permit them to build the temple with them. So they, in a high state of peak, they went back up to Samaria and built their own version of the temple in Jerusalem and worshipped up there. And uh, they took the Old Testament and cut it up into little pieces and threw out portions of it that pointed to worship at Jerusalem and the centralized uh, concept of worship there. They taught that Moses sacrificed Isaac on top of Mount Gerizim and that Abraham met Melchizedek at Gerizim. And they eventually ended up with uh, only the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible is their Bible. So they had a corrupt form of worship. That's why Jesus said, you're wrong. We Jews are right. But let me tell you, it doesn't make any difference whether you worship down here on Mount Gerizim or down there in Jerusalem because the hour is coming and now is. It's here. When... When people want to find God, they'll find Him here. That's what He's saying. Not hither or yon, but here. If you want to know God, He'll come to live in your heart. That's what He's saying. God is spirit, pure spirit. You have a spirit. And the God who is spirit will come live in your human spirit. And He says that's where you worship Him. You worship Him in the heart, in the human heart. And in truth, that is in reality, all along all of these temples and tabernacles that God had His people build were just illustrations, that's all, just patterns, just symbols of the greater reality that was coming, the time when man could worship God right here. And it was true even back then. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Mount Gerizim. We don't have to travel across the country. All we have to do is open up our hearts to God and say, Lord Jesus, come in. Come into my human spirit. Open up the sanctuary of your heart to Him and worship and love Him. Devote yourself to Him there and He'll come in. And that's what satisfies you. That's what your heart is hungered for all along. You thought it was a man, Jesus said. But it wasn't. It was God. And you can look the face of the earth over and you can try every man in the universe and you will never find the man that you're looking for because there are no princes out there. But the prince has come. It's the Lord Jesus. And, and, you, and we can worship him right in our heart. He can come to live there and satisfy us. That's what we've been hungering for. You see, it's that hunger that drives women. And it's that hunger that drives men. We think uh, you make it into Fortune 500 and the thirst will be gone. Are you buy a condo in McCall? And the thirst is gone. 
Are you by a backcountry ranch and the thirst is gone? Are you teach yourself to fly so you can land on in your backcountry ranch and and the thirst will be gone? But it never is. There's always something more. Or you find the perfect mate and you discover about midway through the honeymoon that she is not at all what you thought she was or that he is not at all what you thought he was and the temptation is, is, to, is to walk out of the thing and find somebody else. But let me tell you, there isn't anybody else out there that will meet your needs. There's only one person who will satisfy you and me. It's Jesus. And he calls us to worship in the human heart. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. There's a dawning realization of who he is. I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. The Samaritans believed in a Messiah too. They believed that he was more like Moses, a lawgiver, than a son of David. Nevertheless, they believed in a Messiah. Samaritans did, the Jews did, and so does every person on the face of the earth. That's where all these myths and folk tales and stories of Superman and Superwoman and all these other things come from. Because we're looking for the perfect person, the Messiah, the one who will come and set things right. Who will explain life to us, as she puts it. That's what we're looking for. That one who will come and, 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 and give me what I'm looking for. And I want you to read what Jesus said. He did not say this to any of the theologians in Jerusalem. He did not say this to his disciples. Who presumably understood far more than anyone else at that time. In fact, he didn't say this to anyone again until, until his trial. Listen to this. I who speak to you am He. You see, He thought she could handle it. He never believed that women, just because they were women, could only reason in a shallow manner. He never put them down intellectually. He never demeaned them. This is a revelation that He gave to a woman that He did not give to any other man until the very end of His life. It's human life. I who speak to you am he. How clear can you get? How unequivocal can you be? If, if you're an Israelite here, one of God's people, Jewish person sitting here, I want you to listen to Jesus' words. She says, I know Messiah is coming. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. How clear can you be? The uh, woman, we're told, according to verse, uh, well, excuse me, let me back up to verse 26, uh, verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he'd been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Uh, they had grown accustomed to the Lord doing unusual things and shaking people up, breaking with convention. He was never controlled by his culture or by conventions. And uh, they didn't say anything though they must have been amazed that he was speaking with a Samaritan woman. And uh, the woman, seeing the disciples there, apparently, left her water pot. I think that's significant. Again, I, there are no throwaway lines in John's Gospel. I think everything has significance. I, who needs a water pot when you have, a, have a, 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 a spring flowing in your heart, flooding your life, satisfying you? 
I think John, John was standing there, of course. He was one of the six apostles that Jesus had, perhaps a few more at this time. And, and he observed this as he went off and left the water pot. And musing about it later, it occurred to me, and my, it's very significant. She was certainly excited and went off and left it, but I think it's, it's symbolic. She didn't need her water pot anymore. She, she had found the fountain of life. And she went back to the city of Sychar and notice who she told. She said to the men, only friends she had. Didn't have any women friends. They were all afraid of her. She said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? A little bit of uncertainty. She's not sure. Uh, to say this is not the Christ, is it? It's a bit strong. We would probably put it today. Could this be the Christ? Still a little bit uncertain. But there was a growing consciousness that this was the man she had been looking for all of her life. She said, "I come see this fellow who told me everything I ever did. The adulteries, the affairs, the abortions. They had abortions back then. It's nothing new. They had that, that ability. The, the, the flirtations with married men. The attempts to dress seductively so that, that I would attract some man to myself. The thoughts that have gone through my mind of having an affair even though the, the, the affair never was consummated. He knew it all. But you see, when Jesus exposes us, he doesn't leave us feeling guilty. He cleanses. He didn't merely open her up to walk off and leave her embarrassed and shamed. He opened her up to heal her. That's what Jesus does. He knows everything you have ever done. He knows everything I have ever done. He knows everything we've ever thought about doing. The disgraceful, terrible things that go on in our mind. And he loves us anyway. And he loved her. He saw her just as, as she was. He wasn't put off by her. Every other man, uh, they were either flirting with her or trying to use her in some way. The women didn't like her. They were afraid of her. They were embarrassed to be around her. They didn't want to be tarred by association with her. But Jesus didn't care. He sat on the well, chatted with her. Led her from her basic understanding of a thirst for water to a much more profound level of understanding that a real thirst was for a man and not for a, a human man, but for God himself. And that the Lord had come to meet that need. He found her. Do you see that? Remember earlier, Jesus said, the Father is looking for people to worship him. The Father had seen the hunger of her heart, though she was a terribly mixed up woman. He had seen that inside. The thing that drove her was this hunger for something more. And she thirsted for God. And God had seen that. And he got his son to a well in Samaria so he could tell her what she was really looking for. You see? That's why he had to go through Samaria. The Father sent him. And let me say, if there are any of you out there that are looking for a man and you haven't found him yet, he's seeking you. He's sitting on the rim of your well. He's waiting for you. He's been looking for you all your life. 
Maybe you feel utterly hopeless and wasted. You've just given up on the idea of marriage. Maybe you are living with someone now or someone is living with you. And you know it's wrong. And 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 you feel guilty and your heart is full of, of hurt and frustration. But you see, Jesus knows that. And he still loves you. And he's still seeking you. Maybe you've come to the well time and time again to draw water and you come up empty. Well, he wants to give you a spring of water that will that will well up within you and satisfy you to the end of your days. You may never find a man. And you certainly will never find on this earth the perfect man. But the Lord Jesus will be what you've been looking for all your life. He'll be your man. He'll satisfy you. He'll take away the hurt and the pain. And He'll give you again the capacity to love, to love others. I love the, the words of the hymn writer. He puts it so well. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Perhaps you feel that you can't feel anymore. You've lost the capacity to feel. And you've lost the capacity to hope. And you've lost the capacity to love. But those feelings that lie buried, he can restore. Touched by a loving hand, wakened by kindness. Chords that were silent will vibrate once more. He'll be within you, a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray. If you're a woman that's been waiting and looking and longing for someone to love you, I just want to say again that there is there is uh, one whom the hymn writer calls the lover of your soul who's sitting by your well. And he wants to assure you that he cares about you. All you have to do to meet him and know him is to open up your heart. He wants to come and and dwell within your spirit and be within you that well of water that he was describing that that uh, will spring up, will well up and, and give you an eternal quality of life. Not only endless existence, but, but meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And, and he'll restore your enthusiasms. And he'll give you back what, you, what men have taken away from you. And he'll take your loss and turn it into gain. And he'll, re, he'll use you to reach other women and draw them uh, into the arms of the Savior. He'll do that for you. No one is too far out or too far gone or too lost. All you have to do is ask Him. Lord Jesus, I want you to be my man. And the same is true of us men. We, uh, we too dig wells in the wrong places and and we try to draw water out of empty wells. There simply is nothing that will satisfy like Jesus. Not a condo in Sun Valley. Not more prestige or power or influence. Those things in the end become very, very empty. And we end up uh, as disillusioned men. Just as thirsty as this woman. Men will always disappoint you. Only Jesus can satisfy. Would you ask me to be your Lord? 
And for those of us that have been Christians, perhaps for a long time, but we've been like this woman, looking for love in all the wrong wrong places. Lord, will you satisfy us with your with your presence? Help us to realize that you're what we've been looking for all along. Will you tell him those things? Now let's stand together, shall we? And continue to pray. Lord, so simply and yet so ably you led this woman into an understanding of perhaps the most profound truth of all. One that philosophers and sages of this age simply do not understand. Forgive us for falling prey to to bad advice and bad counsel and bad thinking that, that makes us believe that somewhere in the world there's someone other than God himself who can satisfy us. Help us to rest content in you. Take away the restlessness of our heart. Help us to to become, as the psalmist put it, like a weaned child, not clamoring, not demanding, not wanting anything more than, than your presence in our life. Help us to cling to you with all that we're worth, all that we have. And we thank you that you hold on to us. We're very special to you. We thank you that you love us, even though you know us. The failures this week, last night, this morning, you know them all, but you continue to love us. And we thank you for that and want you to know we love you too and we want, we want to worship you in our spirit and return to you the love that you've given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.